traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Can anyone fix Brazil? Jair Bolsonaro, a far-right ex-army officer, looks set to inherit the presidency in three weeks' time. Unless he comes out on day one and says, here's my proposal for fixed pensions and somehow shoves it through Congress in about five minutes, there's going to be some destabilising noises coming out of Brazil. Is London the dirty money capital of the world? Britain just doesn't have the number of investigators who are skilled in high-end money laundering cases to tackle the corrupt assets problem. It's been nearly a decade since the last global recession. Are we due another one? When the next downturn strikes, unless it's five or ten years from now, we'll be starting almost immediately with our, our backs against the wall. I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. The first round of Brazil's presidential election resulted in a much stronger showing for Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right populist candidate, than was expected. He got 46% of the valid vote. He's going to go head-to-head with Fernando Haddad of the leftist Workers' Party, who received 29% of the vote. Latin America's largest nation has a huge public finance problem, and the next president will have to get to grips with it. John O'Sullivan is The Economist's Buttonwood columnist. John, how have the markets reacted to the election result? The markets have reacted actually quite positively because the focus of the markets at the moment is not necessarily politics per se, but more Brazil's big problem, which is its public finances. And the view is that Bolsonaro is much more likely to fix it than his closest rival. So the feeling is that although it may be difficult to get the necessary legislation through to fix Brazil's rising public debt problem, he seems the most likely candidate to be able to do so. So public finances, this has been a long burn problem in Brazil. So what are the big elements of that? Well, I can really just simplify it down to one or two elements. So public debt is is high and rising. It's risen from about 60% of GDP in 2013 to about 84% last year. So that's quite a steep ascent and it's still likely to, to increase further. Part of that was just a collapse in revenues after a sort of mining boom, a credit-fueled consumer boom, some of the windfall revenues that just simply won't come back. The upward pressure now is coming from spending, and particularly on one thing, which is pensions, about which accounts for about 55% of non-interest spending in Brazil. And it's rising at a real rate of about 4% a year, which is much faster than any plausible estimate of Brazil's underlying GDP growth. So it's something that needs to be fixed pretty quickly. If an incoming president can fix that, the pensions problem can go a long way to fixing the sort of rising debt problem. It seems to me there's sort of two elements to that. If we imagine that Jair Bolsonaro was the next president, there's two things. One is, is he going to be able to do it? And in Brazil, that means putting together a coalition uh, in Congress, which is very fractious and really quite corrupt. And the other is, is he even going to want to? The man's a populist. Yeah, this, this, it's an interesting question because he is deemed to be the most likely to fix it. But looking from the outside, one wonders how willing he will be to do this. I mean, this is something that's going to create quite a lot of noisy losers. Put it like this, the, the Latin American populism has pretty much been in the economic sphere about ignoring any constraints. 
like public borrowing, like interest rates, like inflation. This is the classic macro, macroeconomic populism that Sebastian Edwards and Rudy Dornbusch talked about 25, 30 years ago. And Bolsonaro seems to be somewhat cut from that same cloth. So it strikes me, looking from the outside, that we might at least puzzle about how willing he is to do this. Then the second thing, as you say, is, is how able he is to do that as well. He's pitched himself somewhat as an outsider from the, the Brazilian swamp, which is probably swampier even than Washington, D.C. So being able to do deals in the kind of traditional way of how politics works in Brazil may actually prove to be quite difficult for him. But that said, on both counts, on willingness and ability, he probably is you know, quite a bit ahead of his rival in, in, in terms of the likelihood of getting it done. We've been writing a lot in the finance section in the last couple of months about emerging market problems, Turkey, Argentina, you know, we're worrying about what other problems might turn up. This doesn't sound at all like any of them, even though Brazil is an emerging market that you're saying is heading towards a slow burn crisis. Yeah, it's an emerging market that's not having an emerging market style crisis. And actually, we've had examples in in recent years of developed markets like Greece having emerging uh, market like crisis. So I suppose it's not such an unusual thing. So generally, what, what usually happens with an emerging market crisis, it's usually based around the idea of you've borrowed a lot from abroad, and now the foreigners want their money back. That's the sort of simplest way of putting it. So you have a boom that's financed by capital inflows, and then the money flows out again and recession, falling, collapsing currencies, widespread bankruptcies, that sort of thing. That's something that you're seeing to a degree now in Turkey and to a lesser degree in in Argentina, sort of classic uh, emerging market crisis. And the symptoms are you had a big current account deficit, you have an overvalued exchange rate, you have high inflation, which tells you that the economy is overheating, lots of foreign debt, low foreign exchange reserves. These are the sort of classic symptoms. Brazil really has none of those, which makes this, this sort of slow burn crisis quite unusual. Its current account is broadly in, in balance. Uh, it's actually got quite a lot of long-term inflows into FDI that's financing what little foreign borrowing it needs to do. Inflation's at a record low. Most of the, certainly the public debt is in its own currency and owned by Brazilians. So usually emerging market crises are about, we're having an argument with our foreign creditors. Brazil is essentially having or about to have an argument with itself. Suppose all the worst fears play out. I mean, there are many bad fears about Jair Bolsonaro politically as well as economically, but let's just focus on the economics. He doesn't get spending under control. He doesn't get a pension reform through. Where is this going? Again, the classic emerging market crisis, it's usually foreigners pull out their money. So how does this play out? Generally, what you get in these sorts of crisis situations is sort of very elaborate dance between markets and and the politics. And I think that's likely to happen in Brazil, really, whatever happens, because unless he comes out on day one and says, here's my proposal for fixed pensions and somehow shoves it through Congress in about five minutes, I think there's going to be some sort of destabilizing sort of noises coming out of Brazil. So I think what happens is this, is that the Brazilians essentially owe the money to themselves. But like many other Latin American countries, I think the the richer kind of Brazilians who have savings, who hold government bonds, who hold stocks, will start to think about moving their money abroad because they they know that public finances that are not stable eventually leads to inflation. So you'll start to see money being pulled out of Brazil and into accounts in Florida, 
by sort of fairly well-off Brazilians. This is something that's not really happened in the past. You see it in Argentina. You certainly see it in, in Venezuela. But Brazilians have really kept their money at home by and large, usually because interest rates have been high enough to persuade them to do so. But actually now, because inflation is at a record lows, short-term interest rates in Brazil are at record lows as well. So the cost of actually that you're foregoing by moving your money out of a bank account in, uh, in Sao Paulo into a bank account in Florida is actually fairly small. So I think what happens is we start to see those pressures, those signals coming, which means as the money goes out, the real falls back again. You'll see uh, longer term interest rates start to rise as, as people are w less willing to hold government bonds. And those sort of signals, in a sense, force the politicians to do the right thing. Well, I hope they do sooner rather than later. Thank you, John. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us on radio at economist.com. Next, the British government has promised to crack down on the laundering of money that belongs to corrupt elites from Russia and beyond. But how are they doing? Matthew Valencia, our special assignments editor, has been investigating just that for The Economist. Matthew, how big a dirty money problem does London have? Well, the short answer is nobody knows exactly because by definition, it's very difficult to uh, pin down exactly how much dirty money, financial sludge is flowing through the city. But the National Crime Agency, which is leading the fight against dirty money, estimates that it's somewhere in the region of in the many hundreds of billions of pounds. The agency also has an overall estimate for global money laundering, which is something like two or three times that. So it seems that what they're suggesting is that um, what flows through London could be something like a third or a half of the global total. Which and that, is, those are annual totals? Those are annual totals, yes. So it's a big problem, in short. And, and why? Why London? Well, London's attractive for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the size. It's the, the world's biggest international cross-border financial centre. It's huge. There's so much money flowing through it. You know, if you want to hide ill-gotten gains... You want to go to a financial centre that's big, and it's really big. So that's one reason. But there are other reasons as well. There's um, the legal system, which foreigners trust. There's language. English, obviously, has many attractions. The education system. And there's also the opportunity to launder things apart from cash. Reputation laundering is a big industry in, in London. Many Russians and other foreigners use the city's public relations firms and others to help them to burnish their image. Some have images that need burnishing and uh, many London PR firms are quite happy to work with them. Interesting that you say things like the education system. I mean, these are things that attract legitimate businessmen and I really mean legitimate businessmen. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not just attractive to crooks, far from it. I mean, it, most of the foreigners who are interested in the British education system are perfectly legitimate. But of course, that's also an attraction to corrupt elites as well from other countries. So what about the particularities of Britain's system? For example, uh, rules on beneficial ownership or rules on shell companies. How attractive is London compared with other places that uh, dirty money might try to go? Britain seems to be very attractive uh, in terms of illicit transactions and the illicit use of, of shell companies. Britain likes to portray itself as uh, a leader in the fight against corporate anonymity, which, of course, can be used to hide ownership in, in, um, in dodgy transactions. So uh, a couple of years ago, Britain became the first country to, to set up a public register of company ownership. Several others have followed, and the European Union is likely to do it soon as well through its um, anti-money laundering directive. So 
on one level, Britain is a sort of world leader in, in corporate transparency and in, in, in combating the anonymity which, which allows people behind shell companies to move dirty money around. However, it's very easy and very cheap to set up a company in Britain and it then gets registered with Companies House, which is a government agency. The system is essentially one of self-reporting because what you've got now is good transparency but very little in terms of verification and supervision. So you can set a company up, you can register some name as the the beneficial owner, and you can hope, and in many cases, get away with with nobody actually checking up on that. So the transparency was the right direction to move in, but it's a job half done, essentially. Do you feel that there is understanding of that at the level of government? Are they planning to tighten up or start inspecting more? There is a realisation that there's a problem with shell companies, but the government's moving very slowly on it. One of the problems in enforcement is that Britain just doesn't have the number of investigators who are skilled in high-end money laundering cases to tackle the the corrupt assets problem. Uh, If you look at some other countries, I mean, America has many, many hundreds of top-notch investigators in areas like this. Italy and some other European countries, the the Guardia di Finanza in Italy is very good at this and they have um, hundreds of of people working on such cases. In Britain, it's, it's probably in the dozens rather than the hundreds. That's partly a resource problem. It's partly a matter of priorities that um, uh, many investigators are focused on cases involving drugs, guns, child exploitation and so on, and are not directed towards money laundering or just don't have the skills to work on those cases. I mean, they're very particular skills. That's an area where they really need to beef up. Thanks very much, Matthew. Thank you. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. And finally... How prepared are we for the next global recession? Ryan Avent is our economics columnist who writes the Free Exchange column. Ryan, you've written a special report in this week's issue of The Economist looking at exactly this question. What's your broad take? I think the the first thing to recognise is that at some point we'll face another global downturn and certainly we ought to be on our guard for one. Second to that, the thing to consider is the way in which the possible contributors to a new downturn are are mounting up and and that ought to give us cause for concern. It doesn't feel to me like we're even back to normal after the last one though. So are we in a bad position already before we might hit this next downturn wherever it comes from? Well, that's really the thing to worry about is that it did take an extremely long time for labor markets to heal. Uh, And because the recovery was so weak for so long, a lot of the policy tools that we normally rely on to fight recessions haven't returned to the place where we would want them to be. And so, for instance, you might look at interest rates. Uh, One of the things we count on in in fighting um, a new downturn or fighting any downturn, rather, is central banks being able to reduce interest rates as much as necessary. Interest rates fell to zero in most countries during the global downturn. And because of 2009 and because the growth since then has been so weak, they haven't been able to move those back up to, to levels we might want to see. So the, in America, they're at about 2%. In Britain and the euro area in Japan, they're barely above zero. What that means is when the next downturn strikes, unless it's five or 10 years from now, we'll be starting almost immediately with our, our backs against the wall. What would policymakers have to do in that situation since they don't have that usual first tool? 
Well, there was some experimentation with with unconventional policies during uh, the, the the global recession of 2009. Uh, quantitative easing, which is when central banks print money to buy things like government bonds, uh, was something that was widely used. There are two problems with reliance on that. One is that there's not a lot of agreement about how effective it is. I mean, we think it gives some sort of stimulative punch to the economy, but it's far more uncertain, at least in economists' minds, than interest rate uh, reductions are. The other thing is that it's politically much more fraught. So when America's Federal Reserve used QE during the financial crisis, Republicans in Congress aimed some, some pretty sharp barbs at the Fed and said that they were courting hyperinflation. Uh, when the European Central Bank was talking about using QE, Northern Europeans said this is debt monetization, this is a bailout of the profligate periphery. And so because it may invite political criticism, central banks are, might be much less likely to use it in adequate amounts. So then you have to talk about other things. You have to talk about perhaps fiscal stimulus. The downside is that over the past 10 years, a lot of countries have accumulated a ton of debt. Getting the political will to do more borrowing, um, you know, that's going to be complicated as well. And, and so then the possibility arises that we might have to try even more radical, more untested stuff. What sort of risks do you see? You must have some ideas of where the weaknesses are or where the blow might come from. There are a few things to kind of keep an eye on. One is the the extent to which corporates all around the world, but in the emerging market especially, uh, have gone on a borrowing binge in recent years. In the emerging world, corporates have, have done a lot of borrowing in dollar terms, which is kind of particularly risky because if the dollar goes up, uh, then those companies might have a much harder time paying things back. Uh, and we have seen the dollar rising recently because um, the Federal Reserve has been tightening policy. Uh, and so I suppose a related risk would be that the American economy is is kind of going like gangbusters at a moment when Things are looking a little shakier in Europe, a little shakier in the emerging world. And so you might get, get tighter monetary policy in the U.S., which would have nasty spillover effects elsewhere. Um, you know, another big risk, I think, is China. Um, the, the signs out of China have been a little uh, worrying lately. There's been a, some signs of a, of a slowdown in, in domestic spending, domestic demand. Um, you know, the government had been trying to rely less on borrowing to keep the economy growing, and it seems to be struggling to, to manage that steady growth they've enjoyed over the past decade without adding to more debt. And so if policy there misfires, that would be a huge risk given the fact that China now is the, the world's largest economy. Uh, and then there, you know, there are all sorts of other kind of potential black swans that we could see. I mean, there's been a, a pretty substantial run up in oil prices uh, over the past year and a half. Um, historically, a big rise in oil prices is something that that can destabilize the global economy. And then there are other things that we might just just not see coming. Complications arising from Donald Trump's trade war, or who knows what. The real worry is that once you start to see difficulties uh, in some places, they sort of feed on themselves. They breed a sense of pessimism, and then you start getting concern within markets about the ability that governments have to respond to, to those pressures. And that sort of feeds on itself. And speaking of governments responding to those sorts of pressures, uh, governments have taken a rather dark and a rather um, policy unconstructive turn, shall we say, in the last couple of years. So right at the time that you might hope people will be able to coordinate and think of radical measures and work together, not looking so good. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you think back to what happened uh, from 2007 to 2009, on the economic side, things looked very bad. One of the things that prevented it from being as bad as the Depression was the fact that governments were willing to work together, that you had governments agree that they needed to do fiscal stimulus. They coordinated on this. They agreed not to engage in protectionism and put up tariffs and things like that. And that really prevented a, a very bad situation from becoming catastrophic. This time around, you know, the economic and financial dominoes, 
you know, they don't look quite as dangerous, but they're going to unfold or, or, or fall over or whatever the metaphor is in a political context that is much nastier. And it's nastier within countries where you have many more viable populist parties. You also have much more tension between countries. We, we see that probably most of all with the trade war brewing now between the U.S. and China. Uh, and I, I think the concern there is that if countries aren't able to do the things they would normally do to get growth going again, uh, it'll be easier to demonize other countries um, and governments will be more willing to, to use those destructive policies like tariffs, like currency wars, to try to get their, their economies moving. Um, and then we, we might find ourselves, even though this sort of initial uh, bit of bad news wasn't as bad as in 2008 or 2009, we might find ourselves in an in a, in a economic situation that is in some ways just as bad. Thank you, Ryan. Very gloomy. <laughs> Always happy to provide a, a bit of depressing news. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.